I am Wolf Blitzer. This is CNN Tonight. Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. The Pentagon warned yesterday not to be fooled, and there's further proof tonight that Russia is not to be taken at its word. It's not drastically reducing military operations around Ukraine's capital and in the city of Cherniv to the north, but increasing its assault. The mayor of Cherniv says uh, his city has been under colossal attack over the last 24 hours, and Kyiv, the capital, has remained under constant bombardment as well, despite Moscow's claims of a scaleback. Here's the Ukrainian President Zelensky's take on that tonight. This is not a retreat. This is the result of the work of our defenders, who pushed them back. The Pentagon says only a small percentage of Russian forces are repositioning from the capital, but the majority remain and the airstrikes haven't stopped at all. Meanwhile, not only are Russians being misled on this invasion by their own government, the U.S. now says Vladimir Putin himself isn't being told the truth about it by some of his own advisors. The new U.S. intelligence reporting confirmed by the Pentagon today. We would concur with the conclusion that um, that uh, Mr. Putin ha has not been fully informed uh, by uh, his Ministry of Defense at every turn over the last month. A U.S. official tells CNN that Putin's uh, been misled about his military's performance, but he's become aware, which apparently led to a rift between Putin and his top defense officials. Much more on that uh, coming up in a few moments with the former U.S. defense secretary, the former CIA director, Leon Panetta. There you see him. Meanwhile, there are new satellite images that show almost all of the port city of Mariupol destroyed. Entire city blocks obliterated. Nothing appears off limits to Russian forces. Nothing. Not maternity hospitals or other buildings filled with children. They even bombed, get this, they even bombed a Red Cross warehouse with its logo clearly displayed. And they even hit a Holocaust memorial in the shape of a menorah in Kharkiv. So the onslaught, onslaught very much continues tonight. Let's go live to our senior international correspondent, Fred Pleitkin. He's joining us from Kiev right now. So, Fred, tell our viewers what you're seeing and what you're hearing tonight. Well, what we're seeing and hearing certainly doesn't look like any sort of de-escalation. In fact, to us, it seemed like an escalation uh, today throughout the better part of the day and into the uh, hours of this night. There was a lot of shelling uh, coming from uh, the Russian side or seeming to come from the Russian side. There were a lot of multiple rocket launching systems that we heard, uh, also artillery as well. Uh, and, you know, Wolf, a lot of that uh, really centers around the northwestern districts or the northwestern outskirts uh, of Kiev. And there's that one area in particular. It's called Irpin. We've been talking about about it a lot. It was one of those places where the Russians tried to break through into the city of Kiev, but they were confronted by Ukrainian forces and pushed back. And so what they're doing now is they're really shelling that place. We today, we got as close as possible to Irpin, and we do have to warn our viewers, some of what they're about to see is very disturbing. Through heavily fortified checkpoints, we reached the edge of Kiev at the suburb Irpin. Suddenly, on top of the artillery barrages, we hear gunfire. Nice gunfire. Much closer, and we have to take cover. This is what it sounds like after Russia said it has scaled down its military operations around Kiev. 
even in the calmer moments, the big guns are never silent. This is the final checkpoint before you would reach the district of Irpin, but it's impossible for us to go there right now simply because it's much too dangerous. It's also impossible for the people who live there to come back to their homes because there's still so much shelling going on and so much unexploded ordnance still on the ground. Irpin was heavily contested between Russian and Ukrainian forces as Vladimir Putin's troops attempted to push through to Kiev. Now, the Ukrainians say they've pushed the Russians back, taken control, and released this graphic video of the aftermath. Buildings and cars destroyed, dead bodies still lying in the streets. Ukraine's security emergency service has now also released this video, showing rescuers taking out at least some of the dead while under fire from Russian artillery. Some of the remaining residents were also brought to safety, including many children, Irpin's mayor tells me. Now Irpin is 100% Ukrainian. We are taking out the wounded and dead bodies. Today and yesterday we evacuated approximately 500 people. Today I myself evacuated about 50 children and 100 adults. The evacuees are brought to this base outside of Irpin. It's not only people, aid groups are now also evacuating the animals left behind when their owners had to flee, including these puppies. We have volunteers who are going under the fire and picking the animals on the street. So you're going under fire, you're going into Irpin and picking animals yes. up? Yes, yes. The Ukrainian army says it's in the process of pushing Russian troops further out of this area, hoping to silence Putin's guns and restore calm to this once quaint suburb. And Wolf, those noises of shelling, unfortunately, that's something that's all too common here in the Ukrainian capital, really throughout uh, all the daylight hours and, and in the nighttime as well. One thing I did manage to do today, Wolf, uh, is I managed to speak to the defense ministry here of this country, and they also said they did see some signs that some Russian units might be pulling away to Kiev and possibly might be going in the direction of Belarus. But they certainly don't believe that that's some sort of goodwill gesture by the Russians. They believe that, quite simply, the Russians can't push through into Kiev. They were confronted by the Ukrainians, they were beaten by the Ukrainians, and now some of them have to pull back, possibly for regrouping, Wolf. Yeah, you got to give the Ukrainian military a lot, a lot of credit. Fred Pleitkin and Key for us. Stay safe over there. We will be in touch. Uh, let's get some more perspective right now. Uh, joining us now, the former Defense Secretary, the former CIA Director, Leon Panetta. Mr. Secretary, thanks so much for joining us. Let me begin with this new U.S. intelligence that Putin's own advisors have actually misled him on the state of the war in Ukraine. And it comes, however, a day after a top U.S. general told Congress that the United States may have a gap in its own intelligence gathering. What do you make of this new information that's emerging? First of all, do you, do you accept, do you believe it? Well, I, I think it's pretty obvious that uh, intelligence, uh, frankly, on both sides, uh, kind of failed in terms of really understanding uh, what, what the Russian army was about and their capabilities, uh, the failure of their leadership, uh, the failure in logistics, uh, and, and the failure of these fighters to be able to really achieve the goal that was set out uh, in terms of the invasion. And I think uh, we also, frankly, have uh, received intelligence that uh, the Russians were a lot more capable in terms of being able to uh, conduct this invasion. Uh, I think we expected, frankly, that they would uh, capture Kiev uh, and uh, basically 
uh, try to take control within a few days of uh, Ukraine. And that wasn't accurate either. So we're dealing with uh, a little bit of bad intelligence on both sides. Here's what the uh, Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said about this intelligence today. Listen to this. One of the Achilles heels of autocracies is that you don't have people in those systems who speak truth to power or who have the ability to speak truth to power. Uh, and I think uh, that is something that we're seeing in Russia. When U.S. official has told us, uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, it was pretty specific. He, he said that, uh, that he's, not, he's now aware that he's been misled and there's now a rift, a rift. We're talking about Putin between him and his defense officials. What do you make of that? Well, I, you know, I, I'm sure that uh, uh, those around Putin uh, have basically not presented uh, the whole situation uh, the way it is and have, in fact, misled him. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that. But I, but I also would be a little bit careful about assuming, therefore, that uh, Putin doesn't understand uh, what's happening there, uh, because he, he is KGB. He's, a, he's an agent. And he hasn't survived in office for over 20 years without developing his own sources of information. So I, I would not assume that just because he's been misled that somehow uh, Mr. Putin is not aware of how bad things are going in Ukraine. So what is, it, what is, what is he going to do in terms of it's getting really bad? He now sees how bad it is. Does he pull back? Does he look for a way out? Or does he intensify this brutal slaughter that's been going on? I, I think it's dangerous, uh, the moment we're in. I, I, we've entered phase two of this war. Uh, phase one was the failed invasion by uh, the Russian army to uh, to capture any major city and uh, was stalled at, on, on every level. And also, obviously, the strength of the Ukrainians in the way they fought. But we've entered a phase two, which is going to involve what I, what I think is kind of siege warfare plus stalemate. Uh, and uh, the Russians are going to continue, I think, to use uh, artillery and missiles and continue to uh, attack uh, areas within the Ukraine. Uh, and the Ukrainians are going to push back. So we're going to see some back and forth here. Uh, and it's a dangerous situation because I think Putin is going to continue to try to achieve his goals. I, I don't trust the Russians. I don't yeah. think anybody should trust them. The Russians, in terms of what they're saying, in terms of pulling back, I think this. I think this fight is now in a different phase, and it's going to continue for a long time. Yeah, I keep hearing that from officials here in Washington. It's going to intensify, and it's about to get even uh, worse. Uh, Secretary Panetta, as usual, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Wolf. Coming up, uh, there's a great deal of concern tonight about the uh, port city of Odessa, and it's bracing for a potentially massive Russian assault, and they're bracing for it soon because of its strategic location. We're going to take you there live. And we're also going to hear uh, from the chair of the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, he attended a classified briefing on the invasion today. There you see him, Senator Menendez. We'll discuss with him when we come back. Thirty-five days into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Kremlin claims to be shifting its focus to the south and east. That possible shift increasing fears for people in Odessa. 
Odessa is normally a very thriving port city, the country's busiest on the Black Sea. The city is known for its resorts and its beaches, the tourism. Now, anti-tank obstacles block the roads. Sandbags and Ukrainian troops stand in defense of the city's historic opera and ballet theater. The size of Odessa's port and its proximity to a Russian base in Moldova make it particularly vulnerable. CNN's Ed Levadera is in Odessa for us right now. Ed, so what is the mood in the city tonight? Well, there's a sense of defiance in the city. As we drove in earlier today, uh, we saw, uh, you know, people filling up parks, the people who are still here, uh, kind of going about their, their business. Uh, on the road in that was filled with multiple military checkpoints, uh, we'd noticed that all of the billboards on the road in had been changed and were now showing off uh, this pro-Ukrainian, anti-Russian force uh, messages to the Russian shoulder, soldiers if they were to come in to Odessa from its north side. So there is that sense and that fortification that you talk about that really shows you what has been prepared. And many people here anxiously watching what is happen, happening with Russian forces in the north. And all this talk about what exactly Russia is up to, how are they going to re redeploy these assets and these forces into other parts of the country. And they take a close look at what's happened in Mariupol. And uh, even though Russian forces has been, have been stalled out for the most part just west of there near Hershon, uh, there is concern about uh, are they going to reattempt to take this part of Ukraine that would essentially be along the northern coast of the Black Sea and really fortify Russia's ability to, to control this part of the country? So even though it's been a relatively quiet few days here in Odessa, many people here will anxiously watching exactly how things are going to begin to unfold and what Russia is going to be up to next. It's really a beautiful city, and uh, people are bracing, sadly, for the worst. Ed Levandera in Odessa for us, uh, and uh, be careful over there. We'll stay in touch. Uh, let's get some more now on how the White House uh, uh, is responding to all of this. Today, President Biden announced $500 million in direct aid, additional direct aid to Ukraine. But some Republican senators say that's simply not enough, and the U.S. should be providing more military assistance. The full Senate was briefed on the late-breaking developments uh, on Ukraine earlier today. Let's get some specific details. Uh, we're joined now by the Democratic Senator, the Chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Bob Menendez. Mr. Chairman, thanks so much for joining us. After the briefing you attended today, uh, one of your colleagues, uh, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, said there will, be, uh, there will be new announcements, he said, from the Biden administration soon on transfers of weapons. Uh, I wonder what you can share with us on the details of this upcoming announcement. Well, Wolf, I think the administration is doing everything possible to make sure that that which the Ukrainians can use and can get speedily uh, and can put into action quickly uh, is going to either be supplied by the United States or transferred from a neighboring country uh, to uh, continue to help the Ukrainians both deal with air defense questions as well as with all the other elements of uh, Stinger, Javelin, uh, and other uh, lethal equipment. And I think that that's, uh, uh, that will build upon the president's humanitarian announcement today. Because they really do need the anti-aircraft, the anti-tank, uh, all those kinds of missiles, and they need tons of them. Uh, you think they're going to get what they want? 
I think there is a, a overwhelming desire by the administration. I think they're working around the clock from the Secretary of Defense to the Secretary of State to the National Security Advisor, reaching out to different countries, uh, all within the region that can provide them, particularly the uh, systems that they know uh, and can operate quickly. Because if we send them a system that they are totally un, uh, unfamiliar with, the training time alone uh, is not something that they can afford. So uh, there is a, a, a unique process here about, yes, providing them the lethal assistance, uh, yes, um, trying to be as uh, forward-leaning as possible, including an air defense, but doing it in a way that the Ukrainians can actually use it, will know how to operate it, and can do it relatively quickly. We heard from uh, Senator Lindsey Graham. Uh, he doesn't think the U.S. is moving fast enough. He said he believes the U.S. should be sending, for example, MiG-29 fighter jets that the U Ukrainians requested weeks ago. Listen to what he said. We cannot let Putin tell us how to help the Ukrainians defend themselves. So I came out of there very frustrated. We're five weeks into this thing, and it seems like Nothing changes. Every briefing's the same. And the Ukrainians have taken this five weeks. The same people that told us this would last four days are given us excuse after excuse. So why can't we do more? And what's your reaction to that, Senator? You know, Wolf, I think if 10 angels came swearing from above that President Biden, who has sent uh, over the course of his year and a quarter in office nearly $2 billion uh, of assistance to Ukraine in defensive lethal weapons uh, and much more to come, uh, if those angels would say he's done it all as much as you possibly can and he's continuing to do it, um, some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle would say those angels lie. Uh, the reality is we will continuously hear, no matter what happens, uh, that uh, the president is not doing enough for Ukraine. Uh, I've now taken it almost as a political talking point, uh, far less grounded in reality uh, than uh, in substance. U.S. officials say uh, they believe Putin is being misinformed as to how poorly the Russian military, at least so far, is performing in Ukraine. How do you square that with what we've seen from Putin thus far? What's your reaction to that? Well, look, uh, I have no doubt when you have a dictatorship, uh, for all intents and purposes, an authoritarian figure that is ruthless, uh, that, you know, uh, saying to that person, uh, things are not going well, it's probably not going to have you keep your job. Uh, being truthful is probably may not keep your liberty uh, uh, intact. And if you're really uh, honest, uh, maybe your life is gone. That, I mean, that's the reality of dealing with Putin. So I'm not surprised uh, that uh, those around him are uh, unwilling to fully tell him what's happening on the battlefield. Having said that, you know, if he's just watching your show, uh, Wolf, then he'll have a pretty good sense that things are not working out all that well. Uh, but, um, uh, but the fact that those around him who really, uh, you know, you want uh, to have leaders who have people around them who are smart, capable, and will tell them what's really happening. Uh, but when you're an authoritarian, that's not necessarily the way the process works. Yeah, it's a, it's a very dangerous situation right now. Everybody seems to think uh, the next few weeks are going to be critical. Senator Menendez, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Wolf.
President Biden's uh, called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. Evidence is mounting of what appears to be crimes against humanity. But will there ever be real consequences? We're going to get insight from two former U.S. officials who've led uh, the nation's efforts in the region. They're standing by. We'll be right back. Ukrainian members of parliament uh, calling Russian peace talks a, quote, smokescreen, uh, a point driven home by President Zelensky. Listen. Yes, we have a negotiations process, but it's only words without anything concrete. For us, the support from the U.S. is essential. Now it is particularly important to lend a shoulder to Ukraine and to show the whole might of the democratic world. My next guests have led U.S. efforts in the region. I'm joined now by Bill Taylor. He was the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And Evelyn Farkas, she was deputy assistant secretary of defense for Russia and Ukraine. To both of you, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Evelyn, what value is there in these talks, given that it appears Putin isn't being told the whole story and, and is sort of making up stuff as he goes along? Well, Wolf, the value, I think, for Vladimir Putin is he can stall for time while his military forces try to regroup. We don't really know how much ability they have to come back, but we know that they, in, you know, on land in terms of attacking Kyiv again, but we know that they have artillery and that they are in a position to, as you said in your earlier segment, frankly decimate Odessa. Um, for the Ukrainians, it's important to show the international community and their people, so for President Zelensky, that he is willing to co you know, cooperate, he's willing to compromise. He's put some important and serious options on the table, he's moved the ball, but he's essentially negotiating with himself right now. So he does need more leverage from us, frankly. You know, Ambassador Taylor, uh, you've sat at the table with the uh, with other nations uh, over your years as a diplomat. How do you put stock in what the other side is saying when you know there's only one man whose opinion really matters and we're talking about Putin? Well, Wolf, you're of course right. Um, and what you know is the people you're, t in this case, the people that the Ukrainians are across the table from, those Russians, they're not connected to President Putin. Uh, so they're kind of on their own. They're probably listening to these interesting proposals. Evelyn's right. The Ukrainians have come seriously to the table. They put some ideas on the table. They've had these conversations with the Russians in Istanbul and earlier up in, uh, on the border with Belarus. Uh, so th they are going through these motions and the Ukrainians have made some progress probably have some conversations and maybe, maybe even made some adjustments to their proposals based on these conversations. The problem is the one you referred to. That is, there's no real connection. There's no obvious connection between those Russians and the person that you say Wolf is making the decision. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not a good system for them and it doesn't help the Ukrainians. You're absolutely right. You know, Evelyn, the Pentagon announced today, and I think this was significant, that these so-called switchblade drones are, quote, in the process of being delivered to Ukraine. How, how does that change the calculus for Ukrainian forces, at least potentially? Well, I think, look, anything that we provide the Ukrainians that provides them with the capability to reach out and attack the Russian forces and take them out one by one, is meaningful. So this contributes in that in that fashion. I don't know how high they go and whether they provide a really good, robust air defense. 
So I suspect that they alone are not not as significant as we would like. I'd like to see some more S-300s in there, something to give them higher air cover from the cruise missiles, et cetera. But um, look, everything we're providing every day is really useful, and I commend the administration for what they're doing. I just think we all need to do more and fast. Yeah, a lot of people agree with you. Ambassador, how much pressure can economic sanctions really put on Russia right now, given that uh, we've already seen, and this I thought was surprising, the ruble has already rebounded to where it was a month or so ago? So that's one measure, Wolf, um, of, the, of the economy there. The other measure, though, is, is what's really going on with the, with the people on the streets. And are they able to buy things? Are they... Do they see this fluctuation in the ruble? Do they see the sanctions on the on the banks that are affecting them? So their banks, the Russian people's banks, are not able to do international transactions, not able to borrow money, lend money. Their ability to do mortgages and pensions is affected. So the Russian people are feeling this, and they will notice other things as well. Uh, they are noticing that somewhere around 17,000 of their fathers, sons, and brothers and sisters are, have been killed in Ukraine. So there, there's a range of things that the Russian people are feeling, and that's going to have an effect. Yeah, we, we, we shall see. You know, Evelyn, uh, we're already seeing, and this is serious uh, and very disturbing, a growing hunger crisis right now emerge in the Middle East, parts of Africa, as a result of this uh, uh, crisis, this war in Ukraine. Can the rest of the world afford to wait for the time that the uh, sanctions may really, uh, the, the time the sanctions may take? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, we already had a supply chain issue um, regarding many commodities. Then oil and gas came into the picture with this war. And then everyone woke up to the fact that Russia and Ukraine provide a tremendous, they're, they're one of the top producers of wheat and other grains globally. And for countries like Egypt um, that rely on the government actually to buy and subsidize just the basic food, which is a, a bread, um, it, it could be devastating. So it's another argument, though, for getting, you know, really providing robust support fast to Ukraine. We want to end this war fast and obviously on terms that are favorable to Ukraine and the international order. So now, it's now week six of this war. You know, Ambassador Taylor, the U.N. human rights chief is uh, the latest to talk of war crimes against Putin, for example, and the Russians. But given that neither Russia nor the U.S. right now actually recognize the authority of the International Criminal Court, uh, what are the options for holding Putin personally accountable for the brutality of the war crimes that we're seeing? Well, first of all, just identifying his actions and the actions of that whole chain of command, by the way, it's going to be Putin on down who are vulnerable to these war criminals uh, investigations um, by just naming them and, and making them think about the, the, the consequences of their actions. That is one effect right there. Then the question is the investigations and the, the evidence is overwhelming. Um, there, there are people out there filming right now and gathering that evidence. The, all of your work uh, and your network's work and others um, are there. It's for, evidence is going to be very clear. And when the Ukrainians prevail, and they will, Wolf, the Ukrainians will prevail sooner or later. I hope it's sooner. Then there will be the steps that will go into the war criminal investigations. 
just take a look at all the pictures of the residential areas, the apartment buildings, the, the schools, the hospitals with kids, uh, with men, women and children murdered. Uh, you just take a look at that. Uh, it certainly feels like war crimes are being committed. Ambassador Taylor, Evelyn Farkas, to both of you, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Wolf. We'll have more on the Ukrainian refugee crisis uh, in just minutes. Uh, but up next, the comedian Chris Rock making his first appearance since Sunday night. That's when uh, Will Smith uh, slapped him at the Oscars. What Rock uh, is now telling his fans tonight after days of silence. Plus, what the Motion Picture Academy now says happened in the moments after that confrontation. We'll have details. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Much more coming up on the uh, war in Ukraine. But first, it's the slap scene around the world. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Nick Mike's name out mouth. Wow, dude. Yes. Just a little while ago, Chris Rock made his first public remarks about that incident uh, at a stand-up comedy show in Boston. Our Chloe Molasses uh, on the scene for us in Boston. Chloe, so what did you hear from Chris Rock tonight? It was the moment everyone was waiting for, Wolf. So Chris Rock, he walks out, takes the stage at the Wilbur Theater just behind me at 8 p.m., and the crowd erupted into just cheers, a standing ovation. It went on for about a good minute, minute and a half. Then everyone sat down and then they stood up and they gave a second standing ovation. Chris Rock looked visibly moved, emotional. He seemed to be wiping tears from his eyes. I'll tell you a little bit about what he said because there were no recording devices allowed. So I was scribbling as fast as I could. He said, let me get all misty um, and S-H-I-T. <laughs> he says, I don't have a bunch of stuff to say right now. I had written a whole show before this weekend. I'm still processing what happened. Um, then he says, Wolf, I'll talk about it at some point. It'll be serious. It'll be funny. But right now, I'm going to tell some jokes. And that's what he did for the next 75 minutes. And it was a bunch of material that he appears to be, he said at one point, trying out for a potential upcoming Netflix special. Um, but he didn't miss a beat. He didn't make even any reference. And nobody in the audience heckled him or screamed out anything or even mentioned Will Smith's name. Very interesting. Uh, as you know, the Academy also released a new statement today saying it had initiated disciplinary proceedings against Will Smith. Uh, what more can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, we know that tonight they held their, that late this afternoon in California, they held their annual Board of Governors meeting that Wolf, they hold every single year after the Oscars. It's their postmortem. But priority number one was talking about Will Smith. They said in a statement, which CNN obtained, that they have given Will Smith 15 days notice, um, that they are going to be taking some sort of action. Uh, they didn't say what, but they did see something really interesting. There was a lot of speculation about why Will Smith was allowed to stay in the Dolby Theater after what happened. Well, the Academy now saying that while we would like to clarify that Mr. Smith was asked to leave the ceremony and he refused and they add that they they wish that they could have handled things differently many people asking me well what could happen well potentially he could be suspended or uh, uh, not allowed back in the Academy and he might not be allowed to present at next year's Oscars because usually the winner of the category presents 
the next year's award to the new winner. Um, so that would be a big blow. So it'll be interesting to see what more Chris Rock has to say. He has another show at 10 p.m. and I'll be in there. Um, and what Will Smith has to say. I do want to point out, though, that Chris Rock's brother, uh, he responded to someone on Twitter earlier today when someone asked him what they thought of Will's apology and if they accepted it. And he wrote no. Then he was also asked if it was true because Diddy said uh, to page six that Will and Chris had squashed things after the show. He also said that's not true either, Wolf. Very interesting. Uh, we did hear a new reaction from two of the Oscars co-hosts, uh, both backing up their fellow comedian. Amy, Amy Schumer, Schumer said uh, Rock handled it like a pro. He called the whole thing disturbing uh, while Wanda Sykes said this uh, on Ellen. Listen. I'm still a little traumatized Me by too. it. Me too. For them to let him stay in that room and enjoy the rest of the show and accept his award, I was like, how gross is this? This is just the wrong message. You know, like you assault somebody, you get escorted out the building and that's it. Seems really clear that the public support has really garnered around Chris Rock, right? Exactly. And I think that Chris Rock is really feeling it right now, which is why he did get emotional at the top of his stand-up show. And it's very, very significant for the hosts of the Oscars, Wanda Sykes, Amy Schumer. We haven't yet heard from Regina Hall to speak out in support of Chris. That's a big deal. That's a big moment. And um, hopefully we will hear more from Chris tonight. We certainly will. And we'll stay in touch with you, uh, Chloe Belas. Thank you very much for that report. Uh, when we come back, we'll return to our major story of the night. We're talking about the war in Ukraine. Uh, I'll be joined by a mother uh, just out of Mariupol, along with her daughter, but other relatives remain behind. She's going to tell us about the escape as her home city fights simply to survive amidst, amidst this Russian attack. That's next. You are about to meet a woman who was forced to escape her home in Mariupol after she says a missile landed in the apartment next to hers. In these images she sent us, you can see the total destruction surrounding the place she once called her home, a home that once looked like this but is now part of the war zone with endless communities full of flattened buildings. When she left Mariupol on March 15th, the theater where they painted the word children on the ground just outside the giant Russian, with, in giant Russian letters, I should say, it looked like this. Uh, but just one day later, the theater was struck. You can see the damage uh, from uh, this uh, before and after. And today, a satellite image confirmed the Mariupol Red Cross warehouse. The Red Cross warehouse was also hit by at least two military strikes. Christina Fenina, who escaped with her husband and nine-year-old daughter, is joining us now. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're currently in Dnipro, uh, which we saw earlier was hit by a rocket. Uh, first, first of all, how are you and your family doing? Oh, thank you very much. Hello, everyone. We are doing uh, well in Dnipro City, and we feel here at least safe, safer than we were in Mariupol. And people are kind here, and we get help from people, and we appreciate it very much. People understand our 
tragedy, and so that's why we get humanitarian aid from any places here. How are the conditions, if you could just elaborate a little bit, where you are now, I know you had to, for example, melt snow for water, uh, simply for water. What's it like? <laughs> it was very cold, first of all. Uh, before the before we had snowing, we had raining, so we had some water from the rain. And the next few days we had snowing, so uh, it, it was minus 10 degrees, and we got the snow in our buckets and then melted, so the um, way we could get some water for any needs. It's really amazing. Uh, I know you've been trying to reach your parents. I, I, I know you've been trying to reach your brother and your nephew. When's the last time you spoke to them? Did they plan to stay in Mariupol or, or leave as well? Um, of course, they planned to leave, uh, but because of uh, my father, he's missing right now. My brother decided to stay in Mariupol and find out about any information about him. Of course, it hurt so much uh, because I know in what um, uh, uh, <laughs> in what place they are, and it's so dangerous. Uh, last time I spoke to him, it was about two weeks ago, and uh, yeah, two weeks ago. That's time when my father lost was lost. So I, hope, I, I want there. well, but uh, my brother said, no, I, I will not go until I find our father. Since that time, I didn't hear anything from them. You must be so nervous. I hope they're okay. Take us back, Christina, to the day you decided to leave. Uh, what was happening? What was going through your mind? Uh, we wanted to leave every single day, but we uh, understood that our city is under the siege. I think the whole world knew about this, and it was not possible because uh, we were waiting for this green corridor so we could move, uh, escape from the city, but we didn't get any corridor. And then we heard people were talking about uh, some route and uh, people started to leave, and uh, we heard that a few cars left, so like on 14th of March, and then we decided to do to try this on the 15th of March. And uh, some uh, people in our yacht, in our um, house, they also decided to leave. It was scary morning. It was uh, air attacks all morning and artillery battles and all kinds of fights that you can imagine. We experienced it while we were escaping our city. It was very scary. I'm sure it was. Uh, how's your little nine-year-old daughter handling all of this? Um, she acts like everything is fine, but every night she has nightmares and she's crying. But during the day she's smiling like it's okay. But of course, she misses her grandparents too much and her cousin. Yeah, it must and, be so, so heartbreaking. I know you owned a small English language school in Mariupol. Uh, so, what's next for you and your family, Christina? Oh, yeah, I feel so bad knowing that my school is destroyed right now. Well, of course, uh, 
as I know English, I plan to give lessons in English as before, uh, but at first I need to find my family. Right now, all my thoughts are in Mariupol with my family. Christina, good luck to you. Uh, good luck to your family. We hope they're okay. Uh, and good luck to your sweet little daughter. Uh, we will stay in close touch with you if we can help in any way. Please don't hesitate to ask. Good luck. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you, too. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Thanks very much for watching. Uh, please join me in the Situation Room tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern. And also log on to our new streaming network, CNN Plus, for the newscast with Wolf Blitzer weeknights, 7.30 p.m. Eastern or on demand. And I'll see you right here tomorrow night as well. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.